Well, let me give you a very brief overview of the passage, first of all. I think it's really quite simple. Uh, Paul is very excited to be able to write to the Thessalonians because he's concerned for them. Uh, you know that uh, he spent only three weeks uh, in Thessalonica planting the church, seeing it established before he was persecuted and had to leave. And so he writes to them now because he's been distant from them and he wants them to know that he's committed to them, that he's been praying for them, that he cares for them. Now he's tried to get back there. Um, he's wanted to be able to meet with them face to face, hasn't been able to do that. And so in Athens makes the choice to send one of his group, Timothy, to go back to them. Uh, Timothy's able to encourage them, but also to bring back news to Paul that they're doing well as Christians. That's basically the message of, of this passage. Now, what I want to do is to look into this through a particular lens, and it's the lens of discipleship. Um, now, when Katie was being interviewed, she talked about wanting to be involved in discipling women on the campus and encouraging other people to disciple others. What did she mean by that? What do we mean by that? Well, if you go back to the Gospels, and we've spent a long time looking at Matthew's Gospel, Jesus calls people to be his disciples. And right at the end of Matthew's Gospel, Jesus calls upon his 11 to go out into all the earth and make disciples from all the nations. That process continues to this day. Not that we make disciples of ourselves, but we call people to become disciples of Jesus and encourage them to be his disciple in the way that they live. It literally means a disciple's a learner, a student, uh, more practically perhaps an apprentice, somebody who is following the master. And what we see when we look at this section of 1 Thessalonians is kind of like a recipe for discipleship. There are five things that I will highlight from this passage and I hope that by the end of this you'll be able to remember them because I haven't checked all of your hands but I imagine that most of you have five fingers on each hand so you can practice twice. Um, and I hope that as you look at this you'll be able to see a recipe for yourself when it comes to encouraging people to follow Jesus and to keep on following Jesus. So let's have a look at what uh, we see here. The first recipe, or the first thing here that he models, is that of a powerful message. You see it there in the opening verse, verse 13, and uh, it's there in the black. We also thank God continually because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as a human word, but as it actually is the word of God, which is indeed at work in you who believe. Paul had communicated to them the good news about Jesus. Jesus who lived, who died for the forgiveness of sins on a cross, who was then raised to life and he was seen by people. That Jesus came to offer life to people who would follow him. And that's good news. And when the Thessalonican, Thessalonicans, or whatever they were, the people from Thessalonica, when they heard Paul speak about that, 
They accepted it not simply as Paul's ideas, but as the word of God, which it actually is. Now, the gospel message, the good news of Jesus, is not only a human message from Paul, it's a divine message by the Spirit of God. And that's the point that Paul's making. It's the second time that he's made it. Um, You might remember, if you were with us a couple of weeks ago, back in chapter 1, Paul says that the gospel came to them not simply with words, but with deep conviction, with power, and with the Holy Spirit. See, the word that Paul's communicating to them, the word of the gospel, indeed, this is true of the word of Scripture. It's not just a human word, it's a divine word. It comes from the Spirit of God himself. Now, there's massive implications for that. See, as we read and as we study the Bible, as it's preached here on Sundays, as you open it up, uh, maybe at your desk or at your bedside, as you gather together in a salt group and you are opening up the Word of God, you are actually listening not just to ideas about God, but God's thoughts communicated to us. It's God's Word. And therefore, it's living and active. It actually works in us to change us and transform us. And you see, that's exactly what Paul says here. He says, it actually is the word of God, which is indeed at work in you who believe. Now, there's all kinds of different messages that people will communicate. But there's one message that will be at work in you to transform you and change you. And that is the word of God. So, friends, as we think about discipleship, if it's to be transforming people to be followers of Jesus, then it needs to be God's word at work. I can't change you to follow Jesus. We can't transform each other to follow Jesus, but God can. Sometimes I know that uh, evangelical Christians and I very happy to be called an evangelical Christian, get criticised for being people of the book. But I think we need to understand what we're talking about when we speak of this book. This is not a textbook. This is not uh, an academic uh, tome of writing. This this isn't simply um, a, a book like you might read Plato or Socrates or maybe recent philosophers. It, it's not human understanding simply what we're dealing with here is actually the sword of the holy spirit it's the word of god it's god's word communicated through people to us and that's what makes it such good news now friends what i'd encourage you to do as we think about this as we think about a recipe for discipleship is to be thinking for ourselves what application this might mean And it might mean that if you've never made a response to this word about Jesus, that God's calling you to accept it as his word so that it can be at work in you to change you. And if you have already taken that step to submit to his word as God's word, then it will have implications for the focus of your reading of scripture, of your listening and engaging a Bible study as you meet one-to-one with other people, if you want to see people's lives transformed, 
then naturally you'll want the word of God to be at work in them as it is at work in you. I don't know whether any of you are involved in meeting one-to-one with other people just to read the Bible. But what a great thing to be able to do as the scriptures are opened and you hear not simply from each other but from God himself. For parents, as, as you want to impart wisdom to your children, as you want to encourage and prepare your children for life, to be hearing from the word of God. And so opening up the scriptures with them and encouraging them. And we are called to encourage one another. And it's the word of God that will encourage us and encourage those around us. That's why when we sing, it's important that we sing words that are truthful, words that come from scripture, because we're called to encourage one another in song. That's why as we gather together, we're called to be people who listen to God And put what we learn into practice. Because his word is powerful. That's the first thing. Second thing is that discipleship is personal. Now I'm not going to go right back over what we looked at last week. But there was some great stuff uh, in the first part of chapter 2. Let me just do a, a quick kind of spin through some of it. Paul said that when he was with them he wasn't greedy. He didn't seek to flatter them. Uh, He he wasn't uh, people-pleasing, he wasn't seeking their praise. Uh, He says in verse 8 of chapter 2 that he was pleased to be able to share not only the word of God, the gospel of God, but, but his life as well. He talked of himself like a mother caring for children, like a father concerned for his children as well. He talks about being blameless among them, encouraging, comforting, urging them to live lives worthy of God and so on. So the thing that we see here is that Paul is personally committed to them. Um, And that attitude that he has towards them continues. So if you look at the passage in front of you, look particularly where you can see the orange writing. By the way, all these colours I've added in, um, if you pick up a Bible for yourself, you won't find the colours like this in there. Um, Just in case there was any confusion. Look, verse 17, brothers and sisters, when we were orphaned by being separated from you for a short time, in person, not in thought, out of our intense longing, we made every effort to see you. It's very personal, isn't it? Um, He he just wants to be with them. Why does he want to be with them? He wants to be able, come down to verse 2, to be able to strengthen and encourage them. And that's why he sent Timothy. He's still praying that he might be able to meet with them down in verse 10 to supply what is lacking in their faith. He wants them to grow. And uh, you see there in in verse 1 and in verse 5, when I could stand it no longer. Um, He's really committed to these people. It's not a case of, of out of sight, out of mind. He continues to be concerned for them. The relationship that he has with them, even though he only spent three weeks with them, is driving his commitment to these people again and again. And as we think about this, friends, this is to impact our discipleship, our encouraging of one another as we follow Jesus. It's a hands-on thing. It's a practical, involved thing. It's a a sacrificial thing. it's, It's an investment in relationships, whether it's parents to their children, whether it's leaders to their groups, whether it's children or youth leaders to the young, whether it's people up front at church, this is what we're committed to, personally investing in the lives of each other. 
as you see new believers, as you see people struggling, maybe as you see people drifting, will you take a step towards them? Will you reach out to them? Are, are there people that you can think about personally encouraging? Is that part of the application for you, that there are people that you know that you could get alongside and encourage them in following Jesus? You might even like to write down some thoughts, some names perhaps. Third thing, it's powerful, it's personal, but it's also painful. Um, there's no doubt, as you read Paul's interaction with this church and with other churches, that he taught them to expect that following Jesus would come at a cost. Jesus himself said that it would come at a cost. You need to lay down your life. Uh, you need to take up your cross. You need to follow Jesus. That's what it is to be a Christian. Um, very, very different from what we hear so often in church circles today become a Christian and there'll be no more pain or suffering and everything will be rosy and things will go well. No, that is not the gospel that we hear in the scriptures. Now, that's why encouragement is so important too, by the way, because it is difficult following Jesus. Being a Christian isn't always the easy option. And Paul tells them that uh, they are going through the same experience these Thessalonian Christians, that he went through with the Judeans. What's he saying? Well, for him amongst the Judeans, uh, you, you see that, that they were involved in killing Jesus and the prophets and, and driving Paul out. Well, so too the Thessalonian Christians have been persecuted by those around them. And Paul's saying that's the way it is. That's just the character of life following Jesus. There will be threats, there'll be persecution, there'll be suffering, there'll be struggles, there'll be temptation, there'll be Satan at work. Um, he, he mentions this, doesn't he, in verse 8. Um, he's, where am I? Verse 8, he says, For now we really live... No, I've got the wrong verse. 18, sorry. 18. For we wanted to come to you, certainly I, Paul, did again and again, but Satan blocked our way. And a little later, he's, he's concerned in verse 5 that the tempter, another word for Satan, might have tempted them and, and his labours might have been in vain. Paul understands that there'll be all kinds of threats to people following Jesus. There'll be Satan himself in his opposition to God. There'll be our own temptations. There'll be people who will persecute. There'll be uh, the deceptiveness of the world around about us. In fact, Jesus taught the same thing, didn't he? Remember the parable of the soils? He said some soil, some seed will fall on the path, some on, on rocky soil, some the, there'll be weeds and thistles that grow up and, and will choke the, the seed. Speaking about the fact that Satan will snatch people away, that there'll be worries, that there'll be persecution, that, that wealth itself will be deceptive and, and lead people away from following Jesus. And with all this going on, we need to be vigilant. We need to be looking after each other. And, and look at the way Paul describes this. In, in verse 14, you suffered from your own people, he says. And uh, verse 3, so that no one would be unsettled by these trials. Verse 4, we kept telling you that we would be persecuted. 
Verse 5, in some way the tempter might have tempted you and our labours in vain. Down in verse 7, therefore, brothers and sisters, in all our distress and persecution. I, I think we see here that, that discipleship, following Jesus, will be painful. It'll be painful and therefore we need to be prepared. And Paul is encouraging them and he, he wants to be um, investing in them, supporting them. He, he sends Timothy to make sure that things are going okay with them because he knows it will be difficult. And so because it will be difficult, we are called to be encouraging of one another, to actually prepare each other for the tough times. I think that there will be periods in people's lives that will be more difficult than others. Difficult for an adolescent, um, working through their identity, wondering about who they are, their, who they are as a person, their sexuality, what they think about life, whether they believe in God, all of these sorts of things. An important time to be alongside our young people. As people uh, move from being children under their parents' roof to, to the freedom of life, thinking through, what is this life about? Where am I headed? What am I into? What do I truly believe? Did I just inherit my, my parents' beliefs? Or are there, uh, is there a reality behind that? Do I need to look at this afresh as an adult and so on? And of course, for some people, the, their becoming Christian does bring persecution. It does bring threat. There is a cost to them in following Jesus. And Paul is therefore saying, let's encourage one another. Let's get alongside and pray for and, and prepare each other for these times. So the recipe for discipleship that we're building, it, it's powerful if it's the word of God at work. It's personal. There's a, an investment of ourselves. It's painful. And because of that, Paul is persistent, fourthly. He's persistent. Now, Paul is, and I don't mean to say this is a game, but if you, if you follow the phrase, he's playing the long game. Um, it, it's not a short-term thing. He was with them for three weeks, but it's not out of sight, out of mind. He's still focused on them. And, and it's right that he should be, because it, it's not how you start that matters. Well, it does. It still matters. But if you're entered in a race, it's how you finish that truly matters. You know, I imagine that most people, perhaps not everybody, there may have been some who knew that they were only going to do a couple of hundred metres or whatever, but in the Port Macquarie Ironman two weekends ago, there were people who were doing it because they wanted to finish. That was the goal. Some of the elite athletes wanted to finish in a certain time. Some might have even um, wanted to be up on the podium. But people want to finish. There's something about being called an Iron Man, whether you're male or whether you're female. There's, there's something about being able to go through that gate at the end. And if, if you've been around and you've watched that race, the, the, uh, there are people who are persevering late into the evening. And a handful of those gathered around with cowbells and, and signs and they're cheering them on because they want them to finish. Well, friends, I think that's just a metaphor, really, of what the Christian life is all about. It's not just how you start, it's how you finish. And Paul is focused on what matters matter most. Have a look at this, the blue writing this time. He says in verse 19, For what is our hope, our joy, or crown in which we will glory in the presence of our Lord Jesus when he comes? Is it not you? 
Indeed, you are our glory and joy. See, what matters for Paul is that the Thessalonian Christians will be standing before Jesus on the last day. He might have only spent a week, two weeks, three weeks with them. He might, in the end of things, only have written them a couple of letters. But, but his crown and his joy, in other words, what he's looking forward to, is seeing them with Jesus on the last day. So he's persistent here in his ministry. Um, it, it's not just the start, it's how they will finish. It's long-term ministry. And again, if I can speak to those of us who are parents, those of us who are grandparents, it's, it's not that we just take an interest in our children at the start, is it? it, it it's not that we, you know, we, we want to set them up and then let them go. No, we, we do want to see our children prepared for life. But as a Christian parent, can I say we want to see them prepared for life eternal? It doesn't matter how much money they make or don't make. It doesn't matter whether they're um, brilliantly fit or, or struggling and sickly. There's all kinds of things that we'll focus on in this life. But we want to focus ultimately on the life to come. And so we will be persistent in praying for and encouraging. Ministry ultimately is long haul. We, we need to have a long range. Um, those of us who've, who've been involved in teaching children's ministry or Sunday school over the years, what a joy it is to meet one of those children later on in life as an adult following the Lord Jesus. But I wonder maybe whether we've just lost touch, whether we've got no idea what might be happening with some of those who were children or youth, or people that we've had a ministry to in the past, or people maybe even that we've led to Christ. See, as I was preparing this particular message, I was personally rebuked at how I know that there's people that I shared the message of Jesus with who started well following Jesus but who have drifted off into other things, who have maybe turned their back upon Jesus, who are struggling and I have lost touch. And it's encouraged me, just looking at this passage, to, to reactivate contact. To, to begin to pray for people again, maybe to, to get on Facebook and find people, to, to follow people up, to ring people, maybe to visit people. And I know it can be a great joy to know that people, whether it's a parent or a grandparent or an aunt or an uncle or or an older Christian, remain committed to you, that they've been praying for you, they've been caring for you. We had a, a wonderful story happen um, in Canberra when I was involved in student ministry there. We had a, a, a guy from South America who came along to our Christian group. And uh, he came along to the Christian group uh, because his uncle had given him money so that he could get a taxi to come across to the university and go to the Christian group. Um, he wasn't even a student at the university. But his uncle was a Christian who'd been involved in university ministry. And so he looked on the website from another part of the world, saw that there was a group on the Australian National University campus and gave his nephew money to be able to come so that he could hear the good news about Jesus. Now, 
I'm encouraged to say that guy's continuing with Christ. He's, he's married and he's working for a Christian organisation called Pioneers, encouraging other people to do the same thing. But there was an uncle who had prayed for his nephew, who, when his nephew started to express an interest in Christianity, took practical steps to put him in touch with other Christians. A great example. So, friends, if we are to be discipling others, it needs to be powerful with the word of God. It, it's personal. It's an investment of ourselves. It might be painful for us and it might be painful for others. And we're called to be persistent at it. Um, but if any of this, if any of this is to be effective, then we will see how important it is to be prayerful, to be praying. Because where we started was with the news that we can't do anything for ourselves, but God can. And it's, I think, so instructive for us. Paul's consciously modelling as he writes this letter. Did you notice that? He says, you've become imitators of us and of the Lord Jesus, and in turn you've become a model to other believers. It's, it's one of the themes of this letter. I think Paul wants us to look at him and to learn from him and what he's doing. And what is he doing? Well, chapter 1, verse 2, the first thing he says is, We always thank God for all of you, continually mentioning you in our prayers. We remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labour prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. That's how he starts. And then this section that we're looking at today, verse 13, And we always thank God continually... Because when you receive the word of God, you received it as it actually is, God's word. So Paul is he's very thankful. Um, in chapter 1, in chapter 2, he's thanking God continually. And I think that's, that's very instructive for us to see his attitude of gratitude. He's thankful. And he's thankful that, that God is at work as God says he'll be at work. Because without God, Paul can do nothing. Without God, we can, we can do nothing. We can chat to one another. We can, we can talk to each other. We could, we could um, seek to you know, rev each other up. We could create a bit of hype. But ultimately, we'd do nothing without God being at work to change us. Not only uh, does Paul pray for people, but he thanks God for being at work in people. And, and I wonder whether we do that much. Um, it's not that I think you don't, it's that I know that I don't. I don't often thank God for his work in people. Um, as we look around church and, and we see things going on, I mean, it was great to hear from Katie and, and what's happening on the university campus, and we thanked God for his work on that campus. We thank God for his work in and through Katie and in the lives of other people. Do, do we do that for one another? Because... People who thank God for his work in the lives of people actually have their antenna up to see what God is doing. We're not just observing socially what's happening around about us. We're looking for evidence that God is at work. And what a great thing to be encouraged by seeing God at work. And friends, I think if we just start to look, we'll see so many things to give thanks to God for. And to be reminded that Paul does that continually... He, he thanks God, but he, 
but he also prays quite specifically, doesn't he? So if, if you come down to, um, and we're in the green section now, um, he thanks God, verse 8. Uh, he prays most earnestly, verse uh, 10, that we may see you again and supply what is lacking in your faith. And then verse 11, may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus Christ clear the way for us to come to you. So he's praying specifically that God will enable him to go back to Thessalonica and encourage these Christians. He's asking God for the opportunities, asking God to make it possible. He, he depends upon God. And he also prays for their transformation. Look at verse uh, 12 and 13. May the Lord make your love increase and overflow uh, for each other and for everyone else, just as ours does for you. May he strengthen your hearts so that you will be blameless and holy in the presence of our God and Father when our Lord Jesus comes with all his holy ones. Um, it, it's worth dwelling on Paul's prayers. Uh, here and in, in his other letters, because they're rich, they're, they're theologically rich, they, they focus on God and what God's doing, and they're practical. And, and they're practical at the level of being focused on transforming people in a substantial way that will be changed spiritually to be more and more like Jesus. I think it's a helpful thing for us to think about our, our prayers. Who are we praying for? What are we praying for one another? What, what are the matters that matter most? What would, our kind of, what would an audit of our prayers show matters most to us? Um, have a look at Paul's prayers because he's focused on praying that God will bring about genuine, substantial change and, and keep doing that. So if you're not sure what to pray for somebody else, you could do a lot worse than just to pray verses 12 and 13 for one another um, and to be guided by that kind of prayer. So friends, dipping into this section of 1 Thessalonians, I think we see a recipe for discipleship. And I think it's quite memorable. I won't look and I'll see if I can remember. So powerful word of God, personal investing of ourselves in each other's lives, knowing that it will be painful, perhaps for us, certainly for, for others, uh, therefore persisting, um, it's the long game that matters, and doing it all prayerfully. And I, I think if we're to commit ourselves to the powerful word of God, to personally investing in each other's lives, um, to, to encourage each other to keep pushing on through pain, to be persisting through the Christian life, the long haul, and praying for each other, we will be a church as God calls us to be. We'll, we'll be seeing God at work in the lives of one another. And what an encouragement that will be. So I, I want to ask you to think about where does this passage challenge you? What application do you think it's calling for? Do you need to be more prayerful? Is God calling you to have your conversations with each other shaped a bit more around his word? 
Uh, are there people who are really struggling, doing it tough, maybe being out and out persecuted for being Christian that, that need your encouragement? Do you know people who are kind of at risk? They're, they're drifting. They're, their lives just don't seem to, to, to feature God much anymore. When I started to think about that, I thought there's, there's people who were at salt. There's people who've been baptised at salt. How are they going? Perhaps we haven't seen them. Do they need a phone call? Do they need a visit? Do they need to know that God still loves them and, and we've not forgotten them? Where are the areas that you might need to apply? So friends, um, here's a recipe for discipleship. Don't be freaked out by that word, discipleship. It's just shorthand for encouraging each other as Christians. Thanks.